Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am one of your hosts, Adam Pawatic, and the other, of course, is Aaron Cameron. We are sitting here today with Amy Erickson. She's the Principal and Managing Director of Global Investment Management at Avis & Young. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. The plan today is to talk about technology disruptors and how it relates to real estate. And so one thing that led me to believe you'd be a great guest is your LinkedIn profile bio list you as a futurist and advisor and echo evangelist which would be a kind of a great tie-in for you know for where we're headed i know you spoke on this topic uh numerous times and you know it's going to impact everybody over you know a very short time horizon it's all happening around us as we speak so we're kind of going to go through today where where the industry might be in in five years how it's going to improve or, or possibly worsen your lot in in real estate just to start off can you tell us a bit about your role at Avis & Young? Sure. The investment management practice at Avis & Young is a global practice, and um, the majority of our investment activities are cross-border. So we're taking Canadian capital into the U.S., Mexico, into Europe. We're bringing European capital into Canada, and that's an expertise that I think is distinctive in our local marketplace. I actually run the practice for Avis & Young, and it's been in place since 2012. Okay, perfect. Is that when you started? I started with Avis & Young in, in 2010, and a lot of the leadership at Avis & Young were colleagues of mine at Jones Lang LaSalle, and we have done this before, building global practices, and so I joined initially to work on the M&A side. Uh, and before the show, you let it slip that you were from Washington originally. Why don't you kind of just, let's let's just start from the beginning, going to go through your experience in real estate. I think that'll help explain you know where this conversation inevitably ends up. Interesting. Okay. Well, so yes, I was raised in Washington State on the eastern edge of the state, not too far from Calgary in the city of Spokane. And I went to university in Boston and in San Francisco. And I studied many different things, but uh, mostly urban planning. That's where my degrees are. And I have a couple degrees from MIT in those subjects. I started in the real estate business in 1979, instance before that first commercial banking crash, and had the opportunity to go from being a lender to being an active hands-on developer at the ripe age of 21. So uh, I've spent about <laughs> Good half- Good crash my, course yeah, there. I was yeah. for sure. Is that after developers handed you the keys back? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, you take this Almost mess. all the contractors went broke. Everybody went broke. It was a big mess. And unfortunately, I was with an insurance company, so the insurance companies had, had farther to fall than the banks did. And we launched uh, open and fund doing um, guaranteed income contracts, buying bank headquarters to help recapitalize the banking mm. system. It was a real mess. But interest rates went from about 8% to 21% in the course of six months, and everybody fell on their faces almost instantly. So it was a nice dose of cold water on the front end of my career. And uh, I've spent about half of my career on the development side and the other half on the investment management side. And I've worked all over the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and Europe. The one kind of uh, you know sunny side of that situation is at 22, you're probably already broke. So you didn't need to become broke because of the crash. You were <laughs> oh, yeah, I there, had a good so. mountain of debt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely true. <laughs> and then uh, if you describe yourself uh, as a futurist, can you explain how that came into your life and uh, you know, where you are now? 
Yeah, well, I th people have told me that all my life, that I have a knack for seeing what's coming in the future. And I have an intense uh, sense of curiosity. And I do have a very strong technical education. And I think in the arc of our lifetimes, it's been really helpful to have a solid uh, engineering and technical and also uh, biological, chemical, you know, just from a science perspective, uh, frame of reference for understanding the world, because that's really driving a lot of the changes today. Can you define what is eco-evangelist? Well, so I am, uh, I love nature, you know, growing up in the Rocky Mountains, it's a really critical part of my sense of, of health and uh, well-being. And I, I have grown increasingly alarmed by the, what we're doing to the world and what we're not taking care of. I'm on the board of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And one of the reasons why I'm so interested in technology is that so many of the technologies are applicable to improving the footprint that the building industry has in terms of uh, climate change. And it's, it's critical that we take enormous steps enormous strides in that direction. The transportation and utility industries have been under fire for 40 years to reduce emissions and deal with this. And people have been ignoring the building sector until very recently. And in most developed economies, buildings produce 30 to 55% of the footprint. And in, a, in locations like Vancouver, where most of the utility grid is green energy to begin with, it's closer to 60. And so it's definitely our turn to be part of the solution. And technology is really where we're going to make the big steps. The thing I think about when we talk about future technologies is, of course, the, the, the pace at which it uh, advances. You know, if you were a futurist 400 years ago, you would have seen the printing press and that would have been your lifetime. You know, that, would, that would have been it. But uh, you know, when you talk about something like autonomous cars, they were in the papers three or four years ago, and then there's stories about them in the road, and now there's talking about real applications where they're gonna impact our lives over a very short time horizon. So it's incredibly interesting to watch how fast everything's happening yeah. you know, all around us. Well, I think that it, there's, I have a couple of perspectives on this particular point. The first is that these technologies are have been around a long time, and artificial intelligence got started in the 1950s. And of course, it takes a long ramp up, not just to commercialize these applications, but the learning curve when you're working on that kind of uh, new innovative technology, it's really a different way of thinking about how to solve problems, is it, it's very, very time consuming. It takes a really, really long time for these discoveries. And then uh, we seem to have a number of things coinciding in terms of their exponential development. And it, it's true, we are. We're making incredible inroads on the material science uh, and engineering side. At the same time, we're making incredible strides in the electrical engineering and artificial intelligence side. And when you combine those things together, you start getting some incredibly powerful uh, applications that are revolutionary in their characteristics. And I think that's why it feels like it's happening so fast is because it's happening in so many arenas around us. There's also been a couple of linchpin events that have happened very recently uh, since, it, it's shocking to me that we've only had access to the internet since 1994. <laughs> 
So really 22 years or something. And we didn't start with e-commerce until 98 when they developed the protocols for uh, security so that you could actually use credit cards over the internet effectively. So really we're only talking 20 years and Amazon's now the biggest retailer in the world or no, I guess Alibaba is, but either way, it's the same difference. Same difference. Same difference. So you, you have, um, there's no question that some of the implementation of these technologies because they're massively more convenient and in some instances more cost effective has been really quick like the take up on smartphones. So last point is that 2016 was the year where the computing power actually surpassed the human brain. So it's computational speed and capacity of the processors. And so I think that feels different to us. Uh, the other thing I notice in terms of my interface with technology, I worked on a project when I was at MIT putting the major US cities into 3D models so that the Defense Department could use them for uh, you know, navigation, basically. Yeah, missile defense, <laughs> if, essentially. But that's the essential technology that's in Google Maps, and now it's on your phone, yeah. right? And your interface with it, I mean, when I was doing this work, it was punch cards, and you stuck them in on one side of the building then walked clear around the other side of the building to get your printout, which was usually, in my case, filled with error messages. But uh, nowadays, you're using your finger, and the interface has changed so incredibly that it's really accessible to everybody. And even though that work was going on 40 years ago, nobody knew, A, it was classified, but B, it was, it's just, it wasn't accessible to anybody. And commercially, today, commercially accessible. Yeah, yeah, well, and today, everybody has uh, the computing power that used to t fill a whole building, even in the 80s, in our pockets. In their pockets, yeah. Yeah, so it's very powerful. But we really don't uh, feel it or observe it until it gets to a commercial level. Right. That's the best part of it. Right. Yeah. That's right. Is there anything, I mean, just on this phase of the futurist, and, and is there anything in the technology uh, world that you're, you see coming that may impact the real estate? I mean, you'd mentioned, you know, development uh, and, and it, it being the use, the sort of previous and earlier than before we started recording, mentioned development and just the way that, that the technology is going to impact, you know, construction and development. Yeah, I, I, I want to start somewhere else and then I'll come back sure. to that question. Yeah. Um, cybersecurity is a subject that we don't necessarily think we need to know a lot about. The Target data breach where all their credit cards were stolen was done through a Target store. And it was a high school level hack. They went through the HVAC system, which shared an electrical panel with the cash registers that were directly tied into the customer database. So at a store, they were able to cyber hack and download all that credit card information. We don't think we're in the cybersecurity business, but we are. And the easiest line of defense is the perimeter defense. But we need to get experts, and certainly at the development process, but for all of our existing building inventory, we need to get developer, we need to get experts in to assess our cybersecurity readiness. And we need to start coming up the learning curve on this because- I've never heard a building owner even refer to that. So your point is- yeah. Very from a liability that. perspective and I think they're in the process right now of working with the insurance industry and I'm talking about like government entities to try and develop a whole lattice of appropriate insurance instruments for dealing with this what's really I think 
thrust that into the forefront as the autonomous vehicles, as you mentioned, because people envision that as being dangerous and creating all sorts of liability situations that we don't think about when you're thinking about a building. But if somebody hacks into a bank's uh, accounting system and does some nasty stuff through your building, um, I don't care, pick a system, the elevator, the lighting. The, I mean, <laughs> we have a lot of touch points that are electrically controlled. And more and more every day. More and more every day, yeah. So those same systems that uh, help us, they're, they're starting to apply AI to um, operating systems of buildings in order to collect more data and then synchronize like the movement of the sun and the occupational level of different floors with uh, HVAC and the lighting mm -hmm. and put automatic controls on it. So you turn off the lights if there's nobody in that area and you can really Elevator grind. use probably falls <laughs> into that route too. Yep. yep, for sure. You can grind an awful lot of savings out of that. But one of the benefits of those types of integrated systems is that by pulling all of it into one central processor, it's a lot more cost effective to make cyber secure. Yeah, easier to protect. Yeah. 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 Protecting one box only, essentially. Yeah. yeah. But then we're going to be in a situation where if you have a power outage, business continuity has always been you know, a big concern of, of, for, for, for any right. business. Uh, and I suspect that you know if you, if you start going that route, you're not going to hold on a hard drive in the building. You're going to move it into the cloud and have it on a server in some secure location in some warehouse in you know, the middle of nowhere, protecting your information that way. But how, how secure is it, though? That's the question, Well, right? I mean, that's, yeah, fair enough. But those, I mean, those, as you know, I mean, any, any, um, any of those server warehousing, they've got they've got the different levels and categories of of protection that they they need to qualify. We uh, at First National looked at financing one. I think Adam, that you 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 were looking at it as well. Where you know we discovered that there are certain requirements and certain types of, of data warehousing centers where they ha they can't be within a certain distance to roads because they want to be that protected and that secure that they can't even have civilians driving by within you know 500 meters. I was referring to a deal we were looking at it not too long ago, and I was shocked at the security Here in thought Here yeah, in Canada, that goes correct. into these centers. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And yeah. yet the province of Ontario outsourced their data to Amazon, who put it out in Loudoun County, Virginia, in close proximity to the NSA. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> it was the sense. most cost-effective solution. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. I mean, they already yeah. have my information, but <laughs> chances are they didn't have yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They do now. <laughs> they do. So your question was about development, correct? So or or, or anything in anything you see coming coming forwards in, in from information technology perspective that's going to impact the real estate community, right? Well, uh, in the in the past decade, a lot of the uh, building technologies were being developed by technology companies, and they really aren't in our business. They don't really know much about the building business. So the majority of the early apps, just looking at the app side of the world, were for houses because they all live somewhere or they're for their apartments. So it's like smart thermostats and the Alexa. And there's just there's a lot of things that have been developed for housing that need to be commercialized. Mm -hmm. um, and the adoption rate in the in the housing sector is uh, well ahead of the uh, commercial sector. In the United States, where the adoption and people love their toys, uh, the adoption... Like the Roomba, things like yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The smart, uh, the smart home systems have already achieved, like, mid-teens adoption. Wow. Uh, and, you know, here, we, we're not even familiar largely with the technology. So there's a lot of room to run on that. Last year, when we did that tenant survey for the apartments, 
Um, it was really interesting because the, the number one amenity that Canadian tenants wanted was greening, but they didn't understand what that meant. And the they just know they wanted. Yeah, <laughs> and the t- well, they, they like the, the idea, I think, more so than actually having to pay for their own utilities and, and figure out how to use a smart meter. Or, what do you mean uh, by greening? <laughs> Well, that was just it. And so in this year's survey, we're going to break that apart into um, a more detailed question so that we can really tease out what they do mean by that. I think my takeaway to the fact that it led all other categories by so much, I mean, it led parking, it led in building health club, it it led pretty much everything by at least 20 points. This is just more like environmentally (laughs) conscious improvements to the building. I think that it's about whether, I think it is partly about wanting to self-identify that you're doing good. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is partly about tenant education and just advertising what you are doing that's good as an owner of properties and and or a building manager and then educating your tenants about what they can actually do to contribute to that it's like you see on your facebook feed 10 easy things you can do to reduce endangered species you know you always click on that and read it because you're like well if it's easy (laughs) i I need to know what it is i never thought of it from that i mean we have an energy efficiency program that or cmhc has an energy efficiency program that first national obviously um worked with cmhc to deploy to our clients for apartments to be you know you know for our, our, our apartment owners to improve the energy efficiency of their building and they get significant rebates and some benefits uh whether it's you know higher proceeds from cmhc or what have you and, you know, it's always a no-brainer to me because, you know, you come to us, we will actually pay for the capital improvements of putting aerators in your faucets or changing your toilets out or uh, replacing your lights or replacing your boilers or replacing your roof or whatever it is that gets deemed as, you know, the most en- energy efficient uh, improvement. Uh, but it's also a great selling feature to your tenants as well, right? I mean, not just notionally that it'll increase your increase your, your rents, but, I mean, it, to your point, it's it obviously something that they're very focused on. I think that's right. And I think that we we use um, accounting as sort of our scorecard. And we use accounting without looking at these kinds of qualitative inputs. I was out at CalPERS um, providing them with a technology presentation. And they asked me to meet with their environmental team and talk to them a little bit about how to operationalize their aspirations because they've always been uh, shareholder activists, kind of like uh, Ontario teachers and BCIMC for that matter on this front, but they weren't feeling like they were getting the traction with their managers. And, and my first question was, well, what's your board indicated? To, are there priorities? You know, you're sitting here in the middle of uh, a drought. <clears throat> if I were you, I'd start with your uh, water footprint. And last I checked, you were the largest mortgage holder in the state of California. You could just offer everybody a $1,000 increase to their mortgage, which would cost them a couple of cents a week to do a rainwater uh, uh, recovery yeah. system. I mean, and, and you could move the needle on the total amount of water draw in the state of California with the stroke of a pen. They're like, great, keep them coming. What <laughs> next? <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, things that are happening uh, in in my mind about the connection between these technologies. And that's an old-fashioned technology, you know, uh, salvaging your rainwater and recycling it for landscaping. Now, that's been around a long time, but it, it's now all automated and it takes mm-hmm. care of it for you and you can stick it into your sprinkler system and it's got an overflow uh, 
backup system and it will draw from the grid when it needs it hopefully it doesn't need it but if you're in a protracted drought you can program it so that if you're on the side of the street that can only water on monday wednesday friday it only waters on monday i mean really it's like all you have to do is sit down and set it up and then it takes care of itself yeah. and, and easy so. is the biggest selling feature to get people to buy into it well it's, that yeah. plus a lot of people don't have a thousand bucks right yeah, they just true. don't i mean they just don't have the extra well they don't have a thousand bucks they want to spend on that Right, right, right. Well, yeah. both, uh, yeah. both probably. And if you, I mean, it's obviously going to increase the value of your home. It is. It's going to be more valuable than the house across the street that doesn't have it. But the appraisers aren't incorporating that in their in their appraisal information because they don't really have tangible accounting type evidence other than the cost savings relationship about be, and that's not the way houses are sold either <laughs> they're either sold with all the bells and whistles or none of the bells and whistles <laughs> uh, right yeah and so i think that using the mortgage tool to uh, assist people with the upfront capital cost which is going to for sure pay you back in terms of the resale value and the resale time mm -hmm. involved on the market because it's just one more uh, tick that your asset has that the others don't on the block mm -hmm. And if, if you've already got qualified borrowers and you already originated the mortgage, it's... it's yeah, well, certainly on the apartment front, you're increasing your cash flow well, at the same time as incenting your, your tenants to pay more for the environmental friendliness of your building, mm -hmm. right? Well, this is something you guys can look into for your own book because I think you have the biggest uh, book. No, we do. No, we CMHC do. I mean, this, this yeah. is a CMHC pr Marsh, product. Yeah, yeah no, we, we are actively soliciting that that product regularly, right? Because it is, it is a no-brainer. And, and at the end of the day, you feel good about helping the environment, right? right and right. making, making your, your, the, the, the footprint of your building smaller. Which is, uh, we, again, as you mentioned, is qualitative, but uh, we tend to look at it in the quantitative basis in money invested versus uh, return. But there is absolutely, you know, a, there's an obligation for corporations to be better corporate citizens, and there is that value too. Um, we got off topic. The um, <laughs> it the, happens. Yeah, don't worry. No, uh, I wanted to bring you back to um, future future um, future improvements and 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 as it's related to development. Right. So uh, I'll start with the construction process. Sure. Um, there's an there's incredible potential using AR and VR with CAD to be able to visualize um, right in front of your eyes what the finished product will look like. What is, sorry, just what does AR, VR, and CAD stand for, just, just for our listeners that may not be CAD familiar? CAD is computer-aided design, and most of the design work that architects and engineers are doing today are done on computer systems. It's a lot faster, and it's cleaner, and it is uh, replicatable. You know, you still need to do the thinking work, yeah, but it takes some of the time consumption associated with models and hand drawings out of the process. So it enables you to do a lot more tinkering hmm. with outcomes. It's the same as doing a spreadsheet on paper, and then having to paper put it into versus doing it in Excel. You just have a lot more uh, manipulatable uh, data that you're uh, left with. So if you think about the front to back end of the whole design process you've really got three pieces to it you've got the design drawings and then you have 
uh, shop drawings that are usually done by the subs about what it's how the, what it's really gonna how it's gonna work, <laughs> how yeah. it's gonna meet your um, aspirational technical specs, and then you have fabrication drawings that get done. But inside a CAD, that can all be done on the same system, so you have a chance to reduce errors and you have a chance to significantly compress the amount of time that's involved back from front to back. And if that in the fullness of time, it's not here now today, although they're working on metal fabrication and um, other materials, even concrete in 3D printers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can, 3D printers are basically taking a digital file and creating it in a material. And it works really great already with plastics and resins and things that are in normal temperature conditions can be liquid and can be sprayed or uh, interfaced with, with light or other factors to cure it so it's hard. Um, metal requires very high temperatures. They're using, they're combining microwave uh, oven type systems to liquefy metal and being able to process it this way. And it, right now it's very expensive. Really, most of those printers are in the hands of the likes of GE who are using it to make engine parts for mm-hmm. planes. Um, so they're still like a million dollars a printer. They're really expensive. Fast forward five but years and they'll be 10 grand. Yes. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden you want to build a building and you've got the, the specs on a, on a computer. It's mm-hmm. much easier just to transfer the file and out comes the, right. out comes the And so the a lot of the, pieces. right. A lot of the situations for cost overruns happen because field conditions are different than you expected or the, this system was, didn't foresee that that system was going to need that space. And you, you, you've got verticals penetrating, you're reading designing in the middle of the construction process that costs you both on time and on materials and on labor and a lot of that stuff will get streamlined so AR is artificial or augmented reality and so typically those involve glasses but it could be other pieces of equipment too that allow you to see what's really in front of you and then superimpose on it either holographic images or data or other things that you might need so if you're working on a renovation project for example you could go with an infrared scanner and you could go with uh, uh, technical information in a data file and your VR glasses or your AR glasses and you can um, you can use the scanner to see what's inside of the walls you can draw up the technical specs you can make notes you, you could actually even record the notes and nowadays the, it'll type it for you right yeah. and you can send the information while you're walking around in the uh, in, in, like if you're con- inspecting construction that's in process the contractors can send it back to their office they can have a GoPro on their helmet they can see you know there's it's amazing how much that connective technology can facilitate uh, communications and uh, real-time design to save money save time and improve on the results because you're not closing up the walls with some problem behind it I experienced virtual reality recently at a urban land Institute event I think it was uh, Norman Lee's shop was uh, hosting it so this is the purpose of selling condos and so right. you go there you strap on goggles you strap on these gloves and now you're you're standing in the middle of an office, you strap them on, and all of a sudden you're in a very vivid condo. And you can move around that condo, you can use uh, the, the gloves to pick up items within the condo. You can, they had a, in this particular case, they had a, a box of donuts, so you could pick it up and throw it across this condo. <laughs> you walk up to the wall, start punching buttons, you can change the colors. 
Yeah. Um, or use a dial to do that. Yeah. Like the materials on the flooring. And, and everything. Yeah. You know, you can visualize it. And like yes. my dad, uh, he's in real estate. He always said the biggest problem you have selling to consumers, based off the consumers of real estate, is they can't visualize yeah. it. And this is it. There's no imagination required. It's right there in front of you. Well, I think amazing. that, that it, you could use that for big commercial projects. Like when you're sitting down go, working on value engineering with your contractor and your contractor says, well, you know, that particular fabric or material, whatever it is, granite from Italy, uh, it's just, just it's, it's, we can't get it inside of the framework of your budget uh, line item because we worked, uh, we blocked it out initially. So we need to substitute materials. So it's fine. You, the, this technology, and it really comes from gaming. That's really what has made, that's been the game changer, no pun intended, uh, for virtual reality is that it both brings the reality of the actual imagery up, but it enables you to interact with it. Mm-hmm. And that's where the power comes from, because you could be standing around a holographic model with your architect, your engineer, and your contractor, and you could be making these decisions and actually see what the impact of that's. I can see be. that being a value, mm-hmm. especially if you're building large uh, retail, you know, in, in, in malls that that you want to. What does it feel like when you're walking in this mall? How does the light interact? I mean, you know, the feeling of walking on a mall is obviously important to any development. Um, so being able to, to do that, you know, be, comf- be confident as a developer to know what you're building is actually going to have a nice feel and that people are going to want to come here and enjoy it. You, before, I think you'd have to look at a piece of paper with some lines on it and say, okay, and try to put yourself inside that paper versus now you can That's you right. And some people you. have great visualization skills. They end up being architects and others, yeah. and others don't. But, you know, they're starting to use uh, virtual reality systems because the architecture students are learning how to design in CAD. They're giving them VR goggles because that really helps them to be able to imagine proportionality of space because when they're first starting... They don't have that, you know, they don't know how big spaces are. They know what feeling they're looking for, and this way they can uh, learn it in situ at the from the very beginning. They don't have to actually build some mistakes in order to yeah. <laughs> learn that tool. experience. Yeah, another thing that, uh, another good example of that, which at that same conference that you were talking about, I, I did go to the technical uh, session where the people who invented all that technology were speaking about how it works. They're, they think it's most valuable for avoiding conflicts. Like because you may have a structural engineer working separately from your mechanical engineer, uh, separate from your building architect on their particular systems, they, they, you might find a column in the middle of a stairway or, you know, I mean, when, when, so when you're building it, then you have to figure out how to cantilever that weight into a, a non-impacted space. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that gets sorted through CAD because if you if you translate it into actual modeling, whether it's holographically or it's uh, thrown against the wall, because you can do that with plans as well, um, it, you can resolve all those conflicts well well before you start a construction, and yeah. it becomes a super costly problem. Yeah. Another example of construction technologies, uh, and, and ironically, the place where they're most actively developing these kinds of systems is Texas. And we uh, a couple of years back, we had... a uh, former priest who is a low-income housing developer from Texas up. He's building panelized uh, systems that are literally like Lego. You can just t- uh, punch and play your walls up and punch windows out and doorways and so on because it's all these are all just modular identical systems. They can be assembled by uh, refugees from 
wherever, Venezuela, right, <laughs> who don't have any English, right? And the systems are, they're basically sandwiches around styrofoam, which is made from recycled plastics. And you can put any veneer on the exterior and the interior finish. And it's got an R value of like 200. And they're building these, they're super, super cheap. I mean, these systems are crazy. It's like $10 a lineal foot for the wall system instead of normal construction at 120. Mm. And they are super, super insulative. So they're actually getting these projects to net zero with only photovoltaic cells on the carports. Hmm. They don't even have them on the roofs. In fact, they turned the roofs into gardens <laughs> because hmm. they typically in a project like that, the land piece becomes a, a much higher portion of the overall cost. And they're getting the land generally for the low income units donated from the cities because right. they have they have such a shortage of affordable housing. And so the, that's like a wild technology. And I was on a ULI panel in Dallas last year with a, a company called Branch Technologies. And if you're a geek like me, you should check out their website. They're doing really cool stuff. They're using biomimicry engineering techniques. So they're, they're trying to imitate nature to use 3D printers in making wild shapes that, are, that contribute to net zero solutions. And they're building all kinds of interesting things, museums and libraries and, and buildings that want to take uh, artistic forms, but also want to achieve super green status. And you couldn't possibly build out of conventional materials because the shapes are curved linear or uh, there's too much open space in the center. And they're building them out of plastics and uh, resins and other things and then anchoring them to the ground. So there's some really incredible ideas that people are starting to explore that in the complete range of construction technology that, that I just I wish I was 20 because it's just I think it's so cool I can hardly stand it <laughs> now it's being implemented in the real world in the real see, world yeah right yeah. Well, there's there's yeah. the story and, and I, I don't remember where I read this now and it's I think it's a bit dated but Chinese uh, there's a Chinese developer building a, a large skyscraper modular modular skyscraper where they're building the, the, the basically like lego they're building the, the blocks off-site and then just bringing them to the site and just stacking them on top of one another and so yeah. i i don't know if there's actually proceeded but certainly in the drawing phase they were saying they could build the you know the 95 story building in three months because it was all just manufactured off-site and just kind of basically stack them all together yeah i mean done. obviously it's time in fabrication in the factories, in the factories is longer. yeah but they've been doing that for some time um tycraft the big uh university professor pension fund out of New York with National, which is the National Electrical Benefit Fund, built a 93-story apartment tower in Manhattan, delivered it probably four or five years ago with that construction. With that type of technology. Mm -hmm. And they rebuilt the World Trade Center with that technology too because they ran out of time. They wanted to have it open for the 15th anniversary of it coming down, and they just, all the bickering about the designs yeah, the and everything else, they ran out of time, so they had to use that technology, that modular construction for the World Trade Center. So that, that, there's those, those are two examples I'm familiar with just in New York City. And are they... Now, I've also heard that they're now using 3D printing to, mm -hmm. use, to print those modules on site. So you don't have to worry about, you know, having a large industrial warehouse with a conveyor belt that's manufacturing these, these Yeah, these 3D printing is a really good example. The, uh, that's been in heavy uh, commercial active use for about 30 years by the military. 
Interesting. Because it's obviously way better to be able to print your spare parts on the fly as you're skating through the desert in Iraq than to have to be hauling all that stuff again, never knowing what. Waiting for a drop or whatever. Yeah, so it's simple. You just digitize it. It, It's interesting. The problem the military is having in Iraq is water. Hmm. (laughs) They can't get water. Can't print water. And water is (laughs) so heavy to uh, transport. So they've been building water treatment plants. Sure. All over the country in order to be able to operate in Afghanistan and Iraq. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. It's uh, it's it's an interesting world. But have you heard of 4D printing? No. Oh, great. I can tell you. About <laughs> technology. <laughs> 4D, printing. <laughs> 4D printing is going on at the MIT Media Lab. And uh, it's you can there's a great TED talk up about it. If you enjoy those sorts of things, 4D printing is uh, printed composite that transforms itself so that the reason they got started down this path trying to figure out literally transformer materials was because uh, in order to colonize Mars for example you can't take that much stuff up there Mm -hmm. you have to have you have to be able to have the spaceship itself convert into other things when Mm -hmm. it gets there and you you're not going to take enough people to be able to do all that functionality so it either has to be assemblable by a robot or the materials themselves have to morph or form their own uh, systems so one of the things that they're working on uh, at the media lab in terms of commercializing is water pipes that uh, can adjust their size based on the pressure of the water flows. And Mm. ideally, they could get to the point where they are optimizing the water flows through the system by uh, self-movement. Right, the pipe changing its its size. Wow. (laughs) Because, you know, basically we size this stuff. My office is down at the base of university, and all of those corners are brand spanking new buildings. And it's not like it was cheapskate developers. It was Oxford and and, uh, Hoop and Cadillac. I mean, these these people really do it right. Mm -hmm. And yet, every time we have a heavy rain, the street floods, the sidewalk floods, because the pipes were undersized. Hmm. And they're undersized because the flood maps are wrong because of climate change. <laughs> so these are pipes that have been installed. Yeah, and they're under streets. Ago. Well, yeah. I mean, in this case, they upgraded them and they upgraded them too small. So you actually get geysers coming out of the street. You know, it pops the, um, the caps off and they'll, they'll be this tall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and those are all brand, brand new, new buildings brand new buildings and so you know we either need to just start installing stuff that is 50 percent oversized just as a or double or whatever we should probably be doing that for electrical too there's another development application i mean you think about uh how many pieces of electrical equipment you have charging at your oh, carol <laughs> at any point in time and it used to be sometimes one mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's sometimes six because you've got all the screens and your phone and your iPad and everything else. So we're drawing so much more electric throughput and that beefs up the HVAC. And so I would say that the most challenging thing in the development business today is really trying to envisage what infrastructure needs to be installed in your buildings in order for it not to be functionally obsolete in three to five years. Yeah, let alone 20 to 30 yeah. or 50 to I 80. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. we don't know what banking's going to look like. We don't know what, uh, you know, in retail, they're starting to put so many um, electronic services in the stores themselves with screens and self-help monitors and so on. I mean, there's just, 
it's it's quite um, easy to underestimate the 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 cooling and the power loads that will be required and all of that just compounds the urgency of having better operating systems having more sensors installed and having greener overall uh, architecture because the the costs are just now, part of the challenge of course though as a developer is you know if you want to go above and beyond that's just more cost that you don't benefit from a, at the at the get co right a tenant well, a tenant today is not going to pay a higher per square foot rent because you've got you know a 50% extra capacity you know of whatever the whatever the utility is today that you think may be needed in 20 years from now well this is back to the same argument uh, that the appraisal community may not recognize it and as lenders you guys are somewhat tethered to what the appraisers think and the appraisers are looking in the rearview mirror now, in my shop, the guys down the hall do tenant rep, and they're, they are advising their clients, you know, you need to care about this. You need to go into a building that has significantly more electrical power capacity than you're using today, because what are you going to do if you can't get it? Yeah, no, <laughs> and you're, you're not going to move, move again. Yeah. yeah, or if you're in a five or ten year lease, you're you're stuck. So yeah. now that's that is an intangible, and you're you're I I take issue with two parts of what you said, and there and you you just basically shared what is the common view exactly. of this. Yeah. First of all, that it costs more. It doesn't necessarily cost more. It doesn't cost more if you plan upfront, right? Bringing the power to the building is what's the big cost. So if you build to bring twice as much power, I mean, you might have a negotiation with Hydro One about how much power they're going to allocate it to you, but the big cost is bringing it there. And then so you buy a, a 15% more expensive transformer, you know, and you've got double the capacity. What that is that penny-wise pound foolish? Well, not if it's the marginal difference between whether you land the next bank tenant. Yeah. It's And people, I don't think there's, you can't, look to data because nobody's collecting this data on uh, because this, these are recent trends they're not long-term well, historical trends but if you do look at the green indexes the tenant retention the tenant satisfaction and the rent is actually higher in buildings that have green certifications than non-green certifications even though the appraisal community is not translating that into what well, are these concerns that developers should be having or are these concerns that municipalities should be thinking about and just mandating it through bylaws that this is a requirement as a developer that we want you to do this for your building because as a city you're i mean you're ultimately it's your your citizens that are going to benefit if you're forcing the developers to put these in you know for the 30 50 year horizon i what i would say yeah, is just, that just, we we are in a world of city states and in Canada, cities don't have taxing authority and they don't have as much control over these types of questions as they do in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. And for the most part, they don't think 50 years in advance. They tend to think much more short term, which is uh, kind of unfortunate. Remember, we were talking about my office at York and Bremner. So the plan that they were flirting with in City Hall, I learned yesterday, for that South Core area had the road coming straight across and bringing the gardener to grade and so the road would be straight from uh, front you'd have a double layer of streets 
in the South Core. Now, can you imagine how much easier it would be to get in and out of downtown Toronto with the double layer mm -hmm. streets? Not to mention the fact that in, in my office, you'd have an unobstructed view of the waterfront and you'd be able to walk straight down there without you know dodging all that traffic. <laughs> so uh, that was a great idea and they did it with great effect in Chicago. Yep. And, and Boston, I believe. When Boston, they buried the artery for, for the tune of something like Two, $20 billion. No, $20 billion. But yeah. uh, yeah. I think it was B. Expensive, <laughs> expensive, but they did it. Yeah, they did yeah. it. They did it with federal money. Yeah. That's the secret, oh, right? I, I didn't realize that. <laughs> the secret sauce is get the feds to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> the, those ta those taxes from Texas took care yeah. of uh, the Permanent Employment Act for the <laughs> for decades in Boston. Anyway, those kinds of ideas uh, I think pay real long term dividends, and it's very difficult because we don't think about our financial models from fifty year horizons and. Mm -hmm what a difference that would have made in the property values and just the operating effectiveness of the South Core area. So it's, you know, that's a different question about how do you build an intrinsic value? And I think the condo world looks at it in terms of how do you pick which amenities to make the investment in versus not. One of the interesting uh, questions in the VR session at the ULI conference was what's it cost? Like what was the total all-in cost to do that uh, VR marketing gig for the condo? And the answer was $100,000, which is the cost of a model unit. The difference is you can show it in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can show different iterations of it and all the different, uh, even, even something as basic as picturing uh, colors and floor patterns people can't visualize that that way they can a model suite there's just one version that's it yep yeah yep good example yeah and of course again you know four years from now that technology will be twenty thousand dollars and people can do it uh, exactly for smaller projects because i think right now if you're spending a hundred thousand dollars on that technology to to showcase your condos you know for pre-sale purposes you need to have a sizable sizable budget you need to have a sizable well and likely project. you know by that point we're all going to have our own virtual reality glasses at home and so it's not even going to you know have to go anywhere to do anything it's just download the app or the plug-in or whatever it is and put your glasses on and there you are now you get to see what the condo unit might look like right you're absolutely right it's and, on your uh, phone interesting point you're talking about uh with with um with condos is they they get immediate feedback on what people appreciate because they go to sales within a short time horizon uh something like an apartment building you're thinking about ownership for for 20 years so you would have considerations about future use future capacity but uh you know condos for a developer it's what do people value right now today because i'm out of this project in two years it's a different kind of a different kind of mentality regarding you know future proofing buildings yeah i think that's true I do, and that's customer education. In which case, if you uh, if you want all those buildings to have Wi-Fi and you view Wi-Fi access as a human right, which I think we're getting very close to, then it probably ought to be in the building code. Mm -hmm. But cities have to compete with one another, and right now, right here, right now, Toronto's issue is affordable housing yep. and transportation. And though to the extent that you can create a level playing field and tilt advantages to people who are facilitating those solutions i think that's fine but you can't do it in a way that's non-competitive with other global cities because toronto's competing at that level with the new yorks and the seattles and the tokyos of the world for the world's best talent for the uh intellectual capital and the um back and front offices of the world's leading companies mm -hmm. and it's all that is all at the margin you know Right in the margin. So it's you can't look at it in a vacuum. <laughs> Unfortunately or <Yeah>. fortunately. <laughs>
Uh, what technology are you most excited about over the next, call it, uh, call it a short term, call it three-year time horizon? They, I, of all the ones that you track and watch and read about, which one has you the most excited? Well, on a personal level, it's autonomous vehicles because I just hate to drive. And I am a transit user, but I get rides to the transit stuff. I really, literally hate to drive. And I have wanted to have a driver since I was five years old, and it just seems like a ridiculous expenditure. But autonomous vehicles that you don't have to own, like the autonomous fleets and Ubers and so on, I, that's just, that that to me is... Cars that are on the road 24-7, they're just per- constantly that, driving around. Yeah. That, I, I mean, I would rather have fewer cars on the road than more. Well, that but would probably cause... Yeah, it should. Yeah. I mean, who who knows? I mean, there's lots of different ways in which this could roll out, and I don't think that it will be in. Even though the technology is there already, I don't think that we are ready from a policy prescriptive uh, and sort of ethical uh, perspective to deal with some of the uh, effects of rolling out autonomous vehicles. But that's the one that, on a personal basis, I'm most looking forward to. Uh, professionally, I'm just totally intrigued right now with uh, the power of combining um, virtual and augmented reality with CAD and with operating systems and just being able to visualize data, collect da- more data, analyze more data, and drive um, sustainability in our built infrastructure that I just think the power of that is is exponentially more valuable than the approaches that we've been using which you know are like doing hand math in comparison to a supercomputer so that would be my answer to that and I think that maybe the most incredible application of that technology is education it does seem I happen to be a book learner but it looks to me like fewer than a third of all people are regular book learners and that the power of virtual and augmented reality to teach children blows out of the water book learning because the engagement level will be so much higher I think so and you know with a there are artificial intelligence systems that are that have cognitive capabilities they can read um, understand whether you're understanding they can figure out whether you are enjoying it or not enjoying it so you could actually individually customize the lesson plan and the computer can deliver the information at the speed and in the most impactful way to the student for its particular learning style now there's obviously a bunch of social repercussions because the role of teachers changes a lot Mm -hmm. in that framework but if we can teach more effectively a much bigger percentage of the population that's game changing because education is currently a one-size-fits-all model for the most part just due to restrictions on one or two teachers in a class of 25 students. I, I there's Sit more, there on a desk and stare at me while I teach to you. Well, you there's know? a lot more to it than that because we also live in a world where most teachers are more than three years out of school and most of these technologies are not even three years into commercial deployment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have an utter mismatch of the expertise. Um, I do do application interviews for MIT of students here in the Toronto area. And for about the last five years, all the students that make it that far in the application process are teaching teachers 
in Peel or in the Toronto School because they are they are so far ahead of their teachers in terms of computer modeling, in terms of their their scientific knowledge, the kinds of science projects they're working on, and um, robotics. Oh my God, the three three to five. It actually, last year, seven of the top ten high school robotics teams in the world were in the GTA. Hmm. Really, and so and it's it's all the kids. It's it's certainly not the teachers because, you know, who learned robotics? <laughs> you know, it was just <laughs> that's peculiar. I mean, do you have any? What's the cause of that? How would it end up? Is that just yeah, just random, or is it? Do you think there's something going on in the in the Toronto area that's that's creating this knowledge or this understanding or? Uh, thirst for knowledge about robotics? Well, one of the patterns that I've seen in um, the application process is that if you have one unbelievably exceptional kid, I get five kids or eight kids from that school applying. Hmm. And they carry everybody with them. And, you know, it's I, I get into debates with people about this subject because I actually think it's more important to bring along all the bottom than to deal with the top uh, because the exceptional kids at nowadays have access to the internet and they get access to the learning that they need and then they teach their peers. And so you end up with, uh, and you only need one exceptional robotics uh, capability student every four years to carry the robotics team mm. for that whole four-year period because it doesn't matter if they're in grade nine or they're in grade 12. If they're really a robotics geek and totally into it, they they already know how to do it before they hit middle school because they learned on the internet. And I had a kid uh, two years back who the city of Brampton actually built an annex onto the main public library for him to run robotics uh training things on the weekend mostly for teachers but it, it brings in students and families and so on from all over the place and they organize it as sort of a mini version or light version of the real robotics competitions that they that are actually sponsored by lego and the companies that have been trying to promote this for the last couple of decades and he was telling me that they had a kid that very small but total genius always 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 was teaching everybody uh, in the room asking questions none of them could answer and uh, they have little games like you assemble a robot and then you play the other teams every weekend mm -hmm. and he always won by mile uh, his team didn't matter who he was paired with he was carrying everybody at the end they gave him the grand award and they finally had mustered the nerve to ask him his age because they just they they were debating between themselves whether he was just really a small kid or a late bloomer or whatever. Seven. Wow. Kid was seven. <laughs> My seven year old seems lazy in comparison now. <laughs> seven. Yeah. So you know it, it, that kid will carry a whole wake of students in along wherever with he goes. Yeah. He can't help it. He he just he shares and he sees what the obstacles are and he. He carries the team that the, the challenge for the school district will be to steer him to teachers to let him do it. Yeah. Because educators won't have that knowledge, of course. Yeah. Well, a lot of They'll, teachers are just stuck in their way and say, no, no, we're working on this math project. So sit there and do it. Right? Yeah. I think that there's a real effort in, at least in this community, on the part of most teachers to get up the learning curve. Um, but it's hard because people who have engineering background or who studied science can get better paying jobs in the private sector. 
and they don't typically become teachers. Some want to be teachers, but it's it, it's it's that's not the usual path to yeah. uh, teaching. So they also don't have the prerequisite education for the for easily adopting to these new systems. Mm-hmm. So I think that's you know if you if you were to ask me what's our biggest problem. <laughs> <laughs> In society, what do I, as a future, in my futurist hat, what do I see? It's definitely education because we, and I think the education system's functioning pretty well in Canada, but it needs to get a lot better real fast. I was going to say, you had mentioned, you know, classrooms with virtual reality and, you know, collecting data, analyzing data. And my first thought was, well, they're going to have to get to the digitized records first, right? I mean, even today, the teachers, if you want to know about a student, you go and you pull a file and it's all paper file and it's handwritten. They don't even have electronic copies of, you know, what the kid learned last year or any disciplinary actions taken or if he's got any sort of learning challenges, whatever it is. All that stuff is written in hand and yeah. filed away in a piece in a file. Last year, I, I, I realized because I spoke in a lot of different countries about uh, technological disruption that I don't like the term disruption. I mean, technically, what makes it disruptive is if it's so much more cost effective or so much easier that people abandon the old technology. That's what, in that case, it is disruptive. It's disruptive of the people that no longer have the system that everybody wants to mm-hmm. buy. Most of the techno- technological work that's coming along is is innovative and it is enhancements enhancements. it's not displacing and people like to use technological dislocation or uh, they like to use these sort of inflammatory terms because people who are non-scientific and non-engineering have some nerves around these concepts because they're not their bread and butter um, comfort zone but there, there isn't. There, I don't agree with the people who say there's not going to be any jobs. That's just ridiculous. We just mentioned digitization of record keeping, yeah, there you go. and then data analysis to improve our ability to deliver care, and just the whole matching system of how we get people to uh, from here to there through the the medical um, system. I mean, there's, there's. If you had properly trained people there's an infinity of jobs that you'd want to go to work on right now yeah, absolutely <laughs> at the very so, least that seven-year-old he's gonna have a job in robotics for sure so <laughs> he'll be fine but uh, yeah it'll yeah. be interesting to see you know how the they sometimes are pulling kids uh, into the hockey draft out of high school yeah. right? it that this has been a problem um in my uh lifetime where they can't get any kids to finish degrees in math at mit because they, they get, get yanked by Google or Wall whoever. Street. Yeah. Oh, really? Million Banks. dollars a year to come do black boxes for hedge funds, and they're seventeen or eighteen years old. And it it's a big problem from a defense department standpoint because they the kids are not getting the advanced mathematics degrees that the that all of the rest of the world, you know, in Russia and China, they you know, they, I don't know, they put the kids under house arrest. That's what they did in Iraq, right? The, <laughs> to try, try and get them to work on uh, these programs clear to the end. They have to get their training to a certain degree, but that's not the way the North American markets work. So that seven-year-old wouldn't surprise me if he's got a company yeah. that's making robots at, instead of going to high school. You know, it used to be you dropped out of college, and now you drop out of high school, right? Because you have access to that stuff on your iPad. Do you see uh, any negative disruptions as it relates to real estate with the direction that technology is taking us? 
I mean, obviously, the, the big one that he's mentioned is jobs, and that's getting got a lot of lip service recently in the newspapers. Um, but ignoring that one, do you see any other potential? Um, yeah, negative? I I, uh, I advise my clients um, to be careful about functional obsolescence because we have a very fully priced real estate market, and I'm talking commercial now because most of what I do is commercial real estate, and properties that are not. Um, it's one thing if you are saving a couple hundred dollars a square to buy a class B building that's, that's re- really class B and much of the systems are getting to the end of their useful life. It's like 30 years old or something. You're going to need to replace the roof and the windows and the HVAC and so on. And you can, and you're actually able to price that. But there's a lot of buildings. My best example would be Scotia Plaza, which just, you know, continues to sell for staggering numbers and its systems are not anywhere close to up to contemporary standards and you're going to have an issue also with uh, exiting a building at that height that has um, relatively generous floor plans when people are packing people in there six and seven uh two thousand square feet you know Mm -hmm. the the current arrangements that people are um space planning to are way different than the design uh, standards that that building was uh, originally intended for when everybody had a 15 by 20 executive office and one or two secretaries out mm-hmm. you know, in a cube and they, they were stacked one deep around the perimeter i mean compared to your floor right here where you probably have um i don't know 15 people in that same size space, maybe 24 people in that yeah, we same made an effort uh, about two years ago to go from the older model style uh office and then to get much more efficient in our space and i, I i've adjusted i don't notice the difference now no, but i think we added about 24 spaces right for 24 additional individuals it doesn't yeah. sound like a lot but it's not that big of a footprint well right? when you look at our cities i mean we, we have a staggering value of real estate in place and that real estate has to quickly become a lot more high performance in terms of its uh, carbon footprint but it also has to quickly become much higher performance in terms of electric loads and HVAC and cybersecurity and the rest of this stuff. And, you know, are we going to be able to pass that through on higher rents? Well, not in comparison to the new build. And the biggest change in my career uh, over that, that arc of period, which is 40 years, is the degree of premium new developments getting. Because it used to maybe get a dollar or two, like an office building, more rent than the uh, second generation class A space. It's getting $15 a square foot more now. And that's recognizing these systems qualities. You're in, in Toronto, where our electric charges are so high, if your um, electric bill goes down by 30%, which is easily workable with new materials and in, uh, your insulation qualities and latest HVAC and your operating systems, you know, that's serious money. It's, it's you know, it is $7 a square foot or $10 a square foot. I mean, it's real money. Mm-hmm. And that translates directly into the rents. Now, it's not showing up in the appraisals. <laughs> and we, we're back to that again. And I think there's a real gap. And, you know, maybe... Uh, some of the more technology savvy appraisal firms will will bridge that gap because they'll massage the data and they'll realize that they were missing a big obvious point. But I think we're gonna. I think that's the dislocation we're gonna see is that we have 
we don't have enough differentiation in the valuations for uh, functionally obsolete assets because they're not recognized to be functionally obsolete. And they're not functionally obsolete for all tenants either. And as long as we have such low vacancy rates in our office market, it's not really showing up in the numbers as richly as it would if we were in Calgary's position. But in virtually every market, there is definitely a split between older B class and A class in terms of vacancy. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, Toronto right now is a bad example because vacancy has gotten so low. Uh, but any market that's got more... Um, Calgary's a bad example, too, because the vacancies are actually lower in the Class B because the problems are at the oil companies, and they're all in they the were all in double the towers. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, we're seeing some anomalies all over the place, but uh, for sure there's... there. We're going to see a lot more gradation uh, because the tenants and the tenant rep agents are getting a lot more sophisticated about understanding the implications of, you know, okay, this building's lead gold and that building's lead gold, but this one got the gold because it's on top of a subway stop and that one got it because it has operating systems that are going to save you $7 a square, square foot, foot. Yeah. and it's only a block further away. So you, you, you decide, is it more important to you to be on top of Union Station or is it more important to you to have your operating cost savings and the uh, ability to report your carbon footprint in your annual report, it, how meaningful is that to you? Does it matter to you if you're in a building that uh, scores on the carbon? It, it should Toronto adopt the mandatory carbon reporting, which I think they will. Um, does it matter to you and your customers if your building is a conspicuous poor performer? Well, the inter interestingly about that comment is that it's not does it matter to you today but do you foresee it mattering to you in 5 10 15 years right because making the decision to move into a new space it's not it's not like you can just say ah you know what i made a bad decision let's move to the new place now right you, once you've just once you've made that decision you're you're pot committed for a certain period of yeah. time i don't know yeah. what the actual numbers say but i'm guessing it's 10 to 15 years on average before before you know there there might be a new yeah. Well, it's different in different places around the world. Like in Germany, they were definitely regulatorily uh, moving in this direction because it's a national security emergency, okay, <laughs> that they get off the reliance on natural gas from Russia. Right. Okay. So the government was leading this thing and everybody, they're, they're bringing everybody dragging and screaming, uh, <laughs> you know, with them. But in Canada, it's actually the pension funds. And you have activist boards at the likes of Oxford and Cadillac and BCIMC who are saying they're dragging their managers kicking and screaming. Right. <laughs> and to get ahead uh, of this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, and Hoop, very, very, very proactive on that. And for Hoop, it's a health issue as much as anything else. And they find that they, even the, the like the RBCs of the world who have a lot of uh, PR around being green, it's hard to talk them into um, trying new technologies like Oxford did down at Water Park. They did not go along with the operating controls and the sensor systems that Cisco installed, which are saving them 30% on their operating costs because mm -hmm. they didn't want to go there. And Hoop couldn't convince them to go into raised floor systems. I mean, we, we've got, you know, each, it, there's not a one size fits all solution. And each type of industry has, has a unique sort of scorecard that and priorities within that scorecard that they have to navigate in making space decisions and so maybe the commercial business is becoming less ubiquitous and more like the residential business 
<laughs> mm, a much more nuanced uh, yeah. basis. Yeah, and some of these um, in the, some of these virtual reality tools might give us the ability to demonstrate to tenants in advance what the numerical benefits will look like with the physical space. I remember being at the, I believe it was the Winnipeg Real Estate Forum probably two years ago, so not that long ago, but um, given that the pace things change, it's you know not an instant amount of time. And there, one of the panelists was saying that the actual tangible benefit that tenants would see you know, in lead certified buildings was purely a function of if they had a corporate image to maintain. So they are, you know, if they're reporting their annual statements or if, they, if they're a public facing company, then they valued it would pay for it. But a large segment of the population, if you're you know, the largest widget maker in, in uh, you know, in Winnipeg, but you're not really customer, you know, are not public facing, you don't care as much about having a lease certified building and worrying about yourself as a, as a corporate citizen. And I would be interesting to see now two years later if that had shifted, if the the people that maybe weren't on board two years ago would now be more inclined to, to think about those kinds of things. Well, uh, to the extent that uh, national carbon tax is put in place, that would hit the bottom Force line. Force them to, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I think that's imminent. Uh, I also think that it, it there may be a big difference between the buy-in, let's call it, just to pick a term for it, in Vancouver and the culture of Vancouver than Winnipeg. And, you know, you wouldn't dream, if you're a tenant, you wouldn't dream of not going in the lead building in Vancouver because it's going to directly affect what your customers think of you. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a law firm, an accounting firm, a bank, whatever. You wouldn't dream of doing that because, uh, you know, people coming to your reception area and say, what's the matter with this building? Why don't they have any plaques? Mm-hmm. Right? But it's also almost impossible not to meet the criteria in Vancouver because the weather's so mild. Yeah, true. (laughs) And that's not at all a case in Winnipeg. And chances are good that it costs a lot more to achieve the performance uh, deliverable in Winnipeg than it does in Vancouver. And that makes a difference too. But culture for sure matters. Yeah, or the combination of if you're paying more to get even less of a warm reception from uh, your your potential tenant base. And competition makes a difference too because you've got... you ha- the largest landlord in Vancouver is Cadillac Fairview, and Cadillac Fairview has been all over this for a decade. And you come to Toronto, and you have the same thing. You've got Cadillac, Oxford, uh, Brookfield. I mean, all of these companies are leaders on a global basis in s- sustainable buildings. And so it doesn't matter if you're a private developer and you're uh, building a smaller building that's targeting smaller. Uh, customers, you're still competing with the broad side of the barn way out in front of you doing lead platinum, mm-hmm. right? So in Toronto, you don't see people building buildings that aren't headed to certifications, um, at least not downtown. You you do a little in the suburbs, but even in the suburbs, because even there you're competing against these same institutions that do it by uh, by decree of their boards. Yeah, we don't care if the tenants are interested. We're doing it because yeah. we're we're going to own these buildings for twenty or thirty years, and it matters to us. Before we got into it, we talked a bit about uh, maybe the use of drones. Is not just for making cool videos. There's obviously very real implications in in real estate. Uh, the most obvious one, or the first one we saw, was single family homes. Mm-hmm. 
there it was for creating really really amazing marketing pieces but since then the technology has advanced into uh, roof inspections doing uh, uh, topographical mapping of of land it's uh it's it's super exciting and not only that obviously there's also regulatory issues Mm -hmm. and the people are Mm -hmm. flying them Mm -hmm. where they should not on a very regular basis yeah well i think the most exciting thing about robotics generally and obviously drones are just flying robots (laughs) is that it can take over work that is either dangerous or otherwise prohibitively expensive and generally the first applications are for safety and so inspections and real-time compliance Uh, Those types of applications, I think drones are already in pretty uh, solid use. In fact, they've been using drones for, I don't know, maybe eight years to follow the uh, autonomous combines in the prairies Mm. (laughs) so that you can, there's things that you can do underwater work and so on that just really is not practical without uh, robotics and mining. I mean, a certain person thinks he can bring back uh, coal jobs. That's not happening. They're way too dangerous, and they've got robots that do all that stuff now. So you've got, I, th- I think that in terms of applications, that's the most exciting piece of that, is that we can really reduce um, human injury, and we can really improve the, the safety and the outcomes with these tools that can replace that kind of Uh, labor that in order to stay safe needs to be totally attentive because humans are easily distracted and that leads to injuries. I know know on a a personal level when I'm touring properties I despise going on the roof. It makes me really uncomfortable. Ah. (laughs) I hate climbing the little ladders and if I can avoid it I will. So this would be one uh, one area where I would feel (laughs) the impact technology on my life. (laughs) If I never had to do it again I'd be happy. (laughs) Yeah have you have you uh, driven a drone? Yeah, they they're they're interesting. I mean, I, I've I've tried out different levels of quality, mm-hmm. um, and the more you pay, the easier they are to right. to navigate. But yeah, really really interesting. With the cameras, and you get the screen in front of you, and yeah, you can, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's really fun. I mean, that's one of the, the reasons why this stuff is so cool, is because it's actually fun, and it's it's fun in part because of the novelty, but it's fun in part because it we're confined to our bodies and what our bodies can do within the realm of fear and safety and <laughs> the laws and yeah, other sure. stuff, and it really expands our ability to know our world. I was at the the park walking my dog not too long ago, and there was a kid there who was probably twelve years old, and he saved up. Uh, well, I actually talked to his dad. His dad has, had helped him along a little bit, but he saved up the money for you know months and months and months of mowing lawns so he could buy an eight hundred dollar drone that was on sale. So you're talking about a drone that's probably worth two thousand dollars. He got it on sale, so that's a substantial piece of equipment, and it was his first time using it. And so at that point, the best use of it he could think of was having his friends try and race it on the ground. So they would run on the ground to try and run how fast it could go. And of course oh. it blew them away. But I'm thinking, you know, give that kid another six months and he's, he's going to thought of something creative for it. And, you know, he's into this 12 years old. By the time he's 25 and entering the workforce, using drones will be second nature to him. It'd be like the way we drive and do I think about driving will be for him navigating a drone with a camera. It's yeah. uh, interesting to see how the seeds it get planted. Is, it is absolutely a competitive advantage to start younger. And to have that natural interest in it. I mean, you yeah. can't, uh, I, I can imagine trying to force my son into doing chores for allowance and then spend it on something he does not want to purchase. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> How old's your son? He's seven. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder yeah. that uh, story close to home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, exactly. I got to get my well. I, I gotta, I'll get my son off the Lego and into robots. I guess is the the obvious solution. Well, the, there are Lego robots. Yeah. You can get the Lego robot. That's the bridge he needs. Kit. Then there yeah. you go. That's, a, that's the introduction. Yeah. It's right, and yeah. they they even have um, apps that you, he can attach. To, does he have a a laptop or a iPad? He's begging endlessly for his own smartphone. I don't know if I'm quite ready to give him I one know, yet. Smartphone but, uh, at age yeah. seven seems a little scary. Yeah, but one of his friends at school has one, so <laughs> it's uh, yeah. curse, curse those parents. Been there, constantly. done that. Yeah. Maybe my next upgrade, I'll give him one. But uh, I don't. I also don't want to, you know, inhibit his desire to to learn technology. So it's a fine line. That way. Yeah, fine line. Yeah. Uh, so we always we always ask our guests if they could. Well, speaking of technology, get into a time machine and go back to the start of their career. You know, in your mm-hmm. case, 1979. What uh, two pieces of advice you would give yourself to help uh, steer yourself into the future you're in now? Yeah, well, the most important one would be to carve out time every week to learn and to never stop learning because a lot of people close that last book, uh, their last week of university. They might read a paper, they might pick up a magazine, but they don't proactively try to learn outside of their specialty expertise. And um, I had an integrated technical education and so it was forced on me, but immediately you could see how valuable it was that interdisciplinary knowledge base because it it does that's the foundation for being able to adapt and predict and at the rate at which we're changing if you don't allocate a block of time from your entertainment budget to learning um, you're going to fall behind and we're we're in a world where there's just such an explosion of opportunity that's that's the most important part is making sure that you're continuously learning the second thing and people have always said that uh, they've always marveled about my career decisions that I am less risk averse than others but I think I would have advised myself to take even greater risks uh, go out on my own earlier. <laughs> I was always the person that volunteered to uh, come up with a new product and go run a new division and do this stuff because I kind of have an issue with authority. But uh, <laughs> I also ha- always wanted to have the challenge, and I didn't do a good enough mapping of the of how I was going to get paid for taking those risks. But I, n- I do not regret ever taking any of the risks that I took in my life. And I actually wish I'd taken more. So, And I think that most people fall in that camp. Now, most people aren't as uh, willing to just, I mean, I've lived in nine cities since I graduated high school. And moved, moving your family is a, a harder thing to do. But I've learned so much just from relocating and working in different cultural settings and at different parts of the real estate food chain. I did that initially because I started my career in a horrific recession. Mm-hmm. And so you needed to have range that was the only way you were going to be employable. I mean, I wanted to be a developer, but there wasn't going to be any development for like another seven years at that point. And then that happened again in the 80s, and then it happened again in the 90s, and it happened again in uh, just this recent recession. So you need to have you need to have cross training and to be able to migrate and not be, be flexible, yeah. and not yeah. be afraid, and not be afraid. Yeah, those are great. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. For the news today, I've got one article, and it actually does relate back to what we were discussing in terms of 
Well, to use the word that every panelist at every real estate forum I've been to uses, bifurcation, mm -hmm. it's a very popular phrase, yeah. uh, it's in regards to Ottawa. So Ottawa stayed steady, government leases. Um, it's a popular investment destination, no doubt, but they are experiencing a banner year. This was as part of um, a recent panel. And so I was reading the article, and my first thought was, every time you go to hear a panel in any city, they always say, great stuff coming up stay tuned so here it's 2017 is going to be one of the city's three most active years on record in terms of investment which is impressive without a doubt but you think okay top three you know that's uh that's something but it's not uh it's not jaw-dropping but then it goes on to say that in the previous 18 months the city's experienced more investment activity and more buildings for sale than in the previous five years combined and you realize that that is that is an amazing turnaround uh, for Ottawa. What's driving Ottawa's uh, growth right now is the tech sector. I think sector it was can. January of 2016 when tech employment actually passed government employment in Ottawa. Really? That's impressive. And yeah. that at, I, in my little screen, because we use our own proprietary screens for making investment recommendations to the pensions, Ottawa jumped up the list. It, it hit the bell on a couple of uh, points. Um, again, back to the risk picture, um, if other people think that it's looking risky because it's carrying one of the highest uh, headline vacancy rates in the country, I'm more interested mm -hmm. <laughs> because that means you're going to get better pricing and it also means you're going to have a pullback on the deliveries. <clears throat> so you also have Kanata healing up because of KRP, the the um, Nortel guys have cornered the market out there. Uh, there's a couple of Silicon Valley investors who went into Kanata just chasing tenants. Um, but really, you've got a cabal that's controlling the supply chain and the pricing, and they're getting real traction in hmm. terms of rent growth there. But they were and, in real trouble hmm. not too long ago. Of course that, they were, uh, but you know everything changes. You, uh, what do they call that reversion to the mean? <laughs> and as you say, the government underpins the whole situation there. So it's you're going to have uh, more of a stable market and less of uh, an explosive market unless you can get supply constraints. And that's what they did to stabilize that uh, Kanata situation. Last point, and uh, this is super important, is infrastructure. And there's $3.5 billion worth of infrastructure going into the city of Ottawa right this second. They're building a massive subway system, and there are all kinds of infrastructure delivering with that, including high-speed fiber and some additional data support. And a lot of this is uh, for the government, obviously, but it's... It's the most important infrastructure program going on in the country right now, by a lot. And cities tend to really flourish in the aftermath of that. It's it's a pretty big mess right now. If you've been in Ottawa recently, mm -hmm. a lot of the streets are torn up. But you will not believe what a difference it's. Well, they're building make. a new arena in the city center. Oh yeah, and the another whole entertainment example. district. Yeah, incredibly valuable. The the mm -hmm. LeBreton Flats project exactly. and the Zibby project. Zibby is uh, is will be the showcase green project in all of Canada when it's done. And I think there's just some really exciting stuff going on in Ottawa. The, there's been a lot of action around Byward Market, and mm -hmm. that it's just it's great. Yeah, love going there. <laughs> and to tie back to our discussion about functional obsolescence, the big pullback there is office buildings that were built for the government seventy years ago do not have the same features that you want in an, uh, t in a tech sector, and so building owners sit in there 
on sitting with vacancy in some cases in the B and C class buildings as high as 20%, and they're waiting to see if they can get another government tenant in. If not, they have to perform a majorly expensive retrofit to the building to make it uh, appealing to the tech sector, which wants a radically different building. Well, it's you have two things going on there. The government has a greening program, and they've radically increased the green requirements of the uh, space they're willing to occupy. But at least that those terms have been set out there. They they are clear about what they're requiring, and so they are moving out of a, the B and C buildings that are not upgradable without window replacements and things that are really expensive. That's to the functional obsolescence point that we discussed earlier. Um, Those buildings may get repurposed in the fullness of time to other uses, hotels, residential, or they'll get reskinned and complete system overhauls. And the question is, when does the when does that make economic sense? Mm -hmm. At what point? Because right now it's cheaper to greenfield new construction, and there's still sites, but in the fullness of time. So those buildings are going to be pretty illiquid for a while. But Allied is a great example of you can do this with incredible success. You know, and they they took basically industrial buildings and turned them into high performance, cool office space that's the you know the peak uh, sweet spot for the whole tech sector. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they've really captured that market here uh, in Toronto. Uh, you know, and Ottawa does have an awful lot of buildings. You know, you think about the portfolio that Dream acquired there. Those buildings are just they probably ought to be demolished. <laughs> the ones that the government is moving out of. They're, they were built either in brutalist style or they're just a glass box. And they're just, they, they're unpleasant in every way. Yeah. And they don't meet the system's requirements. Because to be honest, even though you don't, the government has a set of technical specs. Those technical specs are not that different from what the tech uh, companies need hmm. in terms of the performance attributes of the building. But there is no sort of tech industry consortium that says, you know, if you want to work with us, these are the minimum criteria you need to meet. But basically, if you're building a building that has the technical specifications to meet the government's needs, it's going to work on a technical basis for a technology company. It just might not have a coolness factor. <laughs> yeah, brick and beam goes really well with jeans, right? <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> well, Amy, thanks so much for your time today. Obviously, your knowledge is you know beyond deep. We could probably do this for three days. Straight. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> we have. There's no more need for guests. Our only guest going forward <laughs> will be Amy. Yeah. Every week, tune yeah. in. <laughs> for anybody that enjoyed today's episode, please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Tell a friend about the show. We are on Twitter. We are on LinkedIn. We're on Google Plus, although I don't know why. And uh, <laughs> it's a thing. It's a yeah. thing. I promise. And we're on uh, Facebook. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number One O Five One Four and Eleven Two Five Two.